Welcome to the River Life Podcast. As you listen, we pray that you will encounter Jesus and allow His words to wash you anew. May He reveal more of who He is to your heart. Here's the message for this week. Good morning, church. Morning. Um, so like what Pastor Diana said, we are in our new sermon series on roots and um, last week, Pastor Ernie kicked us off on circumcision, not last week, two weeks ago, on the significance of circumcision. This week, I have the privilege of looking at ritual purification. And if you look at your Bibles, right, it's largely found in chapters, uh, Leviticus chapter 11 to 15. If you look through those five chapters, you realize it's very exciting. Um, they talk about what kind of seafood you can eat. Um, what women have to do after they go through the time of the month. And yeah, just ritual purification. And w- when I was looking at it, I was wondering what I'm going to do, what I'm going to preach from there. But nonetheless, um, after much wrestling and uh, research, I felt that the best way to approach this subject is not to get stuck in the details of the practices of ritual purification. Rather, it is to highlight what ritual purification points towards which is the holiness of God, and therefore our call to be holy. Specifically, I will want to show how the book of Leviticus and also Exodus should shape and affect our worldview. Now, the worldview of the Old Testament is fundamental to us, and without understanding the roots of biblical worldview, we risk using a secular lens, a secular worldview to read the Bible. So if we don't read our Old Testament and we go straight to the New Testament, we risk reading the New Testament with a secular worldview. The stories and practices of Leviticus and Exodus tell us about who God is and who we are in the light of His call. The anchor text today is found in Leviticus 19 verse 2. And uh, at this point of time, I'd like to invite us to rise as I read God's word to you. Allow me to read God's word to you. Leviticus 19 verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today and we come before your holiness. We come before your majesty. And we even just take this moment and this time um, to acknowledge uh, the sacredness and the sanctity of your presence. And I just ask this day, even in our hearts, that we would approach your word with uh, fear and trembling, understanding that it is the words of our creator, these are the words of our maker, and that we are called not just to understand it, but to obey it. So this day, I pray, Holy Spirit, you will cause our hearts uh, to be in the right posture to receive a word, so that we will not be soiled that um, when the word of God is uh, planted in our hearts, uh, our hearts are hardened or the things of this world choke it out, but will be good soil, so that your word uh, will not return to you void, but will do the work that you desire. I pray us in Christ most personally. All God's people say, Amen, Amen. You may take a seat. Now, there are two parts to the message today. 
the first part is about who God is. So the first part is about who God is and God is holy. The holiness of God is central to who he is. You know, when the angels surround, um, uh, uh, saw um, the majesty of God, the only thing they responded is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is central to who God is. And we want to spend time understanding God's holiness within the narrative of the Bible. So we're not approaching the holiness of God as an abstract idea. We don't look at the dictionary to understand the holiness of God. We look at the narrative of the Bible to understand the holiness of God. So that's the first part. The second part, we ask the question, who are we in the light of God's holiness? When we stand in the light of God's holiness, we come to understand that because we are His people, we are called to be holy as well. Essentially, this is the central concern of the book of Leviticus. Multiple times throughout the book, the call to the people of God is the same. Be holy as I am holy. Leviticus 11, 44-45, it says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourself unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Leviticus 20 verse 7. Consecrate yourself and be holy because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Leviticus 20 verse 26. You shall be holy to me. You shall be set apart to me. For I am the Lord, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. For I am the Lord that separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now if you look at the book of Leviticus, right, all 27 chapters of it, the exciting 27 chapters of it, you will find that it's essentially a book of instructions. About 90% of the book contains detailed instructions, both in ritual and in conduct, for Israel to follow so that they can dwell in the midst of a holy God, or so that God can dwell in the midst of them. Now, as New Testament believers, we need to understand why this is the case so that we can understand God's holiness. It would be a mistake, right, if you think we are under the new covenant, the book of Leviticus is not relevant anymore. Move on. That would be a mistake because then we would lose the opportunity to understand the narrative of Leviticus or the worldview of Leviticus so that we can read the Bible accurately. Part one, the holiness of God. In Exodus 33, we have this famous and familiar story of Moses' conversation with God. So in Exodus 33, verse 3, God said to Moses, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. To which Moses eventually replied in verses 15 and 16, and he, Moses, said to him, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? 
Now, we often quote um, Exodus 33, 15 to 16 to express our desire for God's presence. And, and, and this, this desire, this prayer is good. This prayer um, in our hearts that the presence of God is precious and it becomes meaningless if we do church without the presence of God. That is true. The distinction of God's people, both in the Old and the New Testament, is God's presence. So this prayer is good. Without the presence of God, everything that we do is meaningless. But yet, when we look at the context of Exodus 33, we realize that there is another dynamic going on. We need to ask ourselves, right, why did God say He will not go up with the Israelites up to the Promised Land? Why would God say that? He already did all the hard work of splitting the Red Sea, doing the... Wow, very tall, you know, 10 takes one by one, one by one. Why all of a sudden change mind and leave the Israelites on their own? The answer can be found in the previous chapter, chapter 32. The episode of the golden calf. After the Israelites built the golden calf and violated God's commandment, God wanted to destroy the nation of Israel. So Exodus 32 verse 10, it says, Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, that I might destroy them. But then Moses pleaded with God, and God relented, sending a plague instead of death on the people of God. Now it is in this context, it is in the context of what happened in Exodus 32, that God say what He said in Exodus 33. It's in this context that God said that He does not want to go with the Israelites to the promised land. This is because God's presence will bring about judgment and destruction if His holiness is violated. The presence of a holy God demanded a holy people. And if the people of God do not maintain their holiness and the holiness of the land, God will have to punish them. Because He is holy. If God would violate God's commandments, no sorry, if Israel would violate God's commandments less than a year after they came out of Egypt, it will only be a matter of time before they violate God's commandments again. So I just brought you up of Egypt, you know. You just see all the miracles that I did. Then suddenly, just because Moses got up to Mount Sinai, the people of God built the golden calf and violated God's presence. It's going to be a matter of time that they do that again. And the holiness of God, which is a non-negotiable characteristic, would consume and destroy the nation of Israel. But to Moses, even if this is the price, he would rather still have the holy presence of God, which brings about the potential for judgment, than be without His presence. Therefore, throughout the Old Testament, there is this constant tension between God's intimacy, His presence, and God's holiness. To have the presence of God means that you're constantly living with the potential for God's judgments and wrath. To have the presence of God means that you are just one violation away from being consumed and killed by the holiness of God. To steward and host the presence of a holy God, the people of God needed to be clean and holy. The entire book of Leviticus was written to serve this purpose. All the instructions were given so that Israel can keep both themselves and the land holy for a holy God to dwell in. True enough, 
shortly after the episode of the golden calf, we witnessed another incident of how Israel violated the holiness of God and paid for it. Leviticus 10, verse 1 to 3, we read, Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu took their senses, uh, yeah, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So f- fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. The same thing happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, in the death of Uzzah, who reached out and took hold of the ark of God when the ox stumbled. Now this eventually accumulated in the departure of God's presence from the temple and the exile of God's people from his land because repeatedly God's people lived in sin and refused to repent and God's holiness is violated. A holy God demands a holy people. God's holiness must not be violated. This is the fundamental worldview of the book of Leviticus. Now, you may say, we are New Testament believers. We are under the new covenant. What has all this got to do with me? It is true that Jesus has accomplished everything needed for our justification. His death on the cross is more than enough to cover for our sins. And there is nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. There is nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. However, we still need to work out our sanctification. We still need to work out our salvation, our holiness. We must not make the mistake of thinking that there is a lesser call to holiness because we are now under the new covenant. So that was the old covenant, we are under the new covenant. A covenant is an initiative of God that establishes how we are to relate to Him. So under the old covenant, the people of God related to Him through the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system in the temple. Under the new covenant, we relate to God through Jesus, who is both our mediator and our sacrifice. Nevertheless, regardless of whether it's the Old or New Testament, who God is doesn't change. The way He relates to us changes from the Old to the New, but who God is doesn't change from the Old to the New. God is not less holy in the new covenant. We are still standing before a holy God and the call to holiness stays the same. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. Now this is a new covenant already. Yeah? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, not slumbering, not thinking that the coming, um, the coming of Christ is not coming, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. There will come a day when the coming of God will be seen as grace and mercy. 
Verse 14, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. As, as, as people who are, who are the people of God, do not conform to the desires that you had before you came to know Christ, before you were a disciple of Christ. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written in Leviticus, throughout the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. Holiness is not the basis for our salvation. Holiness is the calling of our salvation. We are not saved because we are holy. We are to be holy because we are saved. Let me repeat that again. We're not saved because we are holy. We are to be holy because we are saved. Holiness is the calling of our salvation. We are saved so that God can have a people that is set apart for Him, a people that's holy unto Him. This is the fundamental paradigm shift in our thinking of salvation. The failure of Christianity today is that we view salvation primarily as a ticket to heaven. The failure of Christianity today is that we view salvation primarily as a ticket to heaven. This is the spirit of consumerism entering, seeping into the church. Salvation is so that we can get to heaven. And if we do take this paradigm, this worldview to its extreme end, we might ask ourselves the question, if my holiness is not the basis of my salvation, why bother being holy since all I care about is going to heaven? Since Jesus died for me and I'm saved by grace alone, why bother being holy since it does not contribute to my salvation? It is true, our holiness does not contribute to our salvation. That would mean that we are saved by works. However, every saved person is called to be holy. What I'm about to say here has been debated by theologians for many centuries. And it's not the place of this sermon, nor do I pretend to have a comprehensive understanding of everything. Nevertheless, at the end of time, you and I, every one of us, we have to stand before a holy and righteous God. The same God who consumed the sons of Aaron when they violated God's law we would have to be judged by Him. Yes, we are covered by the blood of Christ. But we must not blaspheme or profane the precious blood of God's Son. Reading from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 31. If we deliberately keep on sinning, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth. What is this knowledge of truth? Read verse 19 to 25. The knowledge that Jesus has died for us. The knowledge that He is our high priest. That we have confidence to enter into His holy presence. After we have received the knowledge of truth, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This verse 28, this is talking about the Old Testament. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy 
on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you commit adultery, two people say you did, you can't ask stone. This is verse 28. Verse 29. How much more, now New Testament, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, who said, it is mine to avenge, I will replay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These words were written to believers who understood that Jesus died for them. These words were written to us. But yet there is this dire warning that if we treat the blood of Jesus with contempt and disregard, there will be consequences. Now, I do not know at what juncture of sinfulness would a believer be considered as having crossed the line. And there might be some of us here who, are, who might want to know how far we can push it. What is the line before we are considered having crossed the line where there is no longer any sacrifice for sin left? I do not know what is that juncture, what is that line, but I know scripture is clear. Verse 26 to 27, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If we keep on deliberately sinning, there might come a point where we can only expect the judgment and wrath of God. I say this not to instill fear in our hearts. I say this to preach the word of God. God's grace and mercy is abundant. But we must not profane and blaspheme the grace of God. I'm preaching Leviticus worldview. We must not blaspheme. We are, God is not less holy when he cross over to the New Testament. His covenant is different. The way he relates to us is different. But the holiness of God from the Old to New Testament is the same. If any one of us here is living in continuous and deliberate sin and you say we are under the new covenant, no problem. I urge you not to treat the grace and mercy of God as unholy. Don't play with the holiness of God. God is holy and He demands His people to be holy as well. Our salvation is not based on our holiness, but our salvation calls us to be holy. Leviticus 19 verse 2 Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. The first half of the message is about God's holiness. We now transit to the second half when we consider our corresponding call to be holy. So what does it mean to be holy? Intuitively, we think being holy as living without sin. Now this is definitely true. Sin and holiness cannot coexist, but this doesn't capture the root meaning of the word holy. Now, in the Hebrew language, the word holy means set apart. 
And there are two dimensions to this. What we are set apart from, what we are separated from, and what we are set apart for, what we are dedicated towards. So, the two dimensions. So there is a separation from something. We are separated from the world. But there's also a dedication to something. We are set apart for the purposes and glory of God. So this is the biblical meaning of being holy. To be set apart from the unholy, from the unclean things of this world. And to be set apart for the worship and purposes of God. There must be these two dimensions. Now I'd like to draw out three um, um, application points of what it means to be holy so that this sermon is not just theological but it's also practical. So the first application point, separation from the world. The second application point, the, the practice of confession. And the third application point, set apart, being set apart for the purposes of God. Number one, separation from the world. Leviticus 18 verse 1 to 3. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say, say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. So you must not do as what they do uh, in the world that you used to be in, in Egypt, right? And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, where you're going to, which is where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. So both Egypt and Canaan represents the system of the world. And in Leviticus 18, holiness is defined as separation from the world. Do not follow their practices. Be separated from them. God told Israel not to follow the practices of the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Now, right after this charge was given, of all the things God could have talked about, He addressed the area of sexual purity. You read in Leviticus 18 onwards, uh, the rest of Leviticus 18, it talked about um, sexual purity. He did not talk about struggle with money, with envy or hatred. He addressed the sanctity and sacredness of sex. I believe there are two reasons for this. Number one, sexual purity is the ultimate tension between our flesh and God's word. All of us innately have a sex drive. Every one of us here, you are a sexual being. You have a sex drive. Our sexuality is fundamental to who we are. Now, different ones of us may struggle with different things. Some of us may struggle with pride. Some of us may struggle with money. But I believe all of us wrestle and struggle in the area of sexual purity. For example, money and material possession might not have a stronghold on you. But staying sexually pure will always be a better ground in our holiness before God. And because of sin, we constantly have to choose whether to submit to our flesh or to God's word. In a way, we are constantly living with this tension. The tension between the desires of our flesh to meet illegitimate sexual desires and the instruction of God's word. Secondly, we live in such a sexualized world and sexual purity is an ultimate demonstration of our separation from the world. To maintain our sexual purity in this world will make us stick out like a sore thumb to not engage in premarital sex, to stay married to one person, to remain sexually faithful to one partner for the rest of our lives, to guard the sanctity of our eyes, to not last after another woman with our eyes. These are things that concretely demonstrate our separation from the world. You know, I, I, I know Pastor Lee touched on this before, 
But a few weeks ago, we were preparing for our young adults gathering, and I was shocked. It came to uh, it, it, it came to me as a shock that fifty percent of at least fifty percent of our young adults have premarital sex before they get married. This means that within this room, this church right now, if you are a young adult, statistically there is more than a 50% chance that you will have sex before marriage. To the young adults in this room, as a pastor, I know it's increasingly difficult to stay sexually pure in the culture you're surrounded in. Everyone is doing it, so why shouldn't you? I want to remind you from God's word that the call to holiness is also your call. And the call to holiness is to be separate and distinct from the world. This means that even though it is socially awkward to make a stand in this area, as disciples of Christ, we need to decide beforehand the boundaries we will set for ourselves. No matter what the world does, no matter what culture says, God's word is clear and unchanging. We cannot compromise our holiness to fit into the world more. We are called to be separate. You know the call, the practice of holiness is not killjoy. Rather, holiness allows us to enjoy the beauty of God's design. Recently, one of our young adults shared with me how he had premarital sex before he was, when he was younger, before he was married. And now that he's married, this past act has affected his marriage and his sexual intimacy with his wife. And as a couple, they need to work things out. And it's been difficult for them. Living outside the boundaries of God's design might seem pleasurable for a moment, but it has consequences later on that will make us regret this one moment folly. Every young adult that I speak to that had sex before they were married, now that they are married, without fail, they will tell you that if they can take back time, they will not have done it. This is my message to young adults. Don't do it. Now, um, there might be some of us here who desire to walk the path of holiness. And maybe you've tried many, many times, but you're still stuck in your sin. While there is no magic pill to make us suddenly holy, the practice of confession is a discipline that Scripture encourages. So this is the second application point I want to talk about, the practice of confession. Leviticus 5 Verse 5, it says, Anyone who becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in the way they have sinned. Nehemiah 9, verse 2 to 3, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses renounces them, and renounces them find mercy. And now a New Testament reference. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, what does the practice of confession look like? Maybe the mental image you have in your mind right now, right, is a wooden box with a veil and a priest behind it. And maybe after the service, we'll build, there will be a wooden box and a veil and ask Pastor Ben to stand inside. We'll just lie one night and confess our sins to Pastor Ben. That will be our application point. I mean, that is my 
my mental image when I think of the practice of confession. Obviously, this is not something we are looking to implement. Nevertheless, right, the practice of confession has been lost in, um, in the church who has been westernized and individualized. Our faith is our own. We have lost this worldview that our faith is communal. Don't ask me more about what's happening in my life. It's between me and God. That's not the worldview of the Bible. So to answer the question, what does the practice of confession look like? We need to first understand the principle behind the practice. And the principle behind the practice of confession is authenticity and accountability. Authenticity. The reason we confess to one another is so that others, our cell members, our leaders, can know who we really are, our struggles and our challenges. Actually, if I were to ask your cellmates, do they know who you really are? There might be a chance that some cell members do not know who their cell members really is. We can give our opinions about the Bible. But actually, do your cell members know who you really are? Because it's only in the context of authenticity that there can be accountability. And it's, being, it's, it's in being accountable to one another that discipleship towards holiness can take place. You see, having been involved in the ministry for some time, I've come to realize the limitation of preaching and teaching. I've come to limit, understand the limitation of what I do right now. You know, I can have a very powerful message. You can feel good for a moment, but you can repeat this to the same old life tomorrow. We can have a good experience now, but it's not continued on by discipleship. All we have is a good experience. You know, we often think how a powerful sermon can impact and transform our life, and that is true. God's word spoken and preached has the potential to change our life. However, it's totally possible to sit through countless sermons and not become more Christ-like. I've come to learn that the preaching and teaching of God's words need to be coupled with accountability. A sermon can ignite or catalyze an initial change in a person, but it is through accountability in mutual encouragement and edification that we walk the path of discipleship and holiness together. And this is a fundamental reason why we have cell groups, have small groups in church. Let me try to illustrate all a sermon does is that it plants a seed in a person's heart. All a sermon or teaching does is that it plants a seed in your heart. We're reminded of the parable of the good soil. You can either wrestle with God's word or reject God's word. Let's take today's sermon example. You have, called, you have heard the call to holiness and the Holy Spirit maybe is highlighting a certain area in your life. Maybe your marriage is struggling. You and your spouse have constant conflicts that might even be shouting involved. Home is no longer a place you look forward to going back to. But no one in your cell knows you and your spouse put up a front. And perhaps some, some members might suspect something in the midst, but you refuse to open up about the struggle to others. Now, obviously, this, this needs to be done in a safe environment, maybe between two or three person, or maybe even be, it, 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 with just one person. But until you open up about your struggles and allow others to journey with you, your community cannot help you. And in this case, no matter how many messages Pastor Ernie or Pastor Ben preach about marriage, no change will happen. Because preaching and teaching without accountability, without discipleship, would just be a good sermon. 
to walk the path of holiness, this practice of accountability and authenticity needs to be restored back in the church. River life, God has placed shepherds and leaders over our lives. Now, they might not be perfect, but that should not determine if you will open up your life and allow them to check in on certain areas of your life. We need to learn to be accountable to one another, to our leaders. It's only in the culture of accountability that discipleship and the path to holiness can be worked out. Holiness does not just happen magically. Holiness starts with accountability. The last application point, to be set apart for God. Holiness is not just being separated from the world. It is also what we are devoting ourselves to. Now, there is this understanding, right, that as long as we don't sin, we are holy. As long as we are moral, we are holy. But biblical speaking, right, this understanding is not complete. You see, the opposite of holiness is not sin. In the biblical worldview, the opposite of holiness is common. Something that's not set apart for God. Leviticus 10 verse 9 to 11. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Now, in the biblical worldview, everything that is not set apart for God is common. Okay, let me illustrate this, right, with the example of the utensil used at the altar of burnt offering in the tabernacle. I'll illustrate this using the example of a utensil used at the altar of burnt offerings in the tabernacle. So in Exodus uh, 38 verse 3, we read that the utensil for the burnt offering, um, this was made, right? So in verse 3 it says, they made all its utensils of bronze, its pots, shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks, and fire pans. Okay, at this juncture, right, these utensils were not yet consecrated. They just, they just made it only, right? So because it's not consecrated, it's not set apart, it is still a common tool. And because it's not been set apart, technically speaking, right, these utensils can be used for other purposes and there will not be any consequence because it's just made, right? right? Um, it's still a common tool. Now in Exodus 40, we read that Moses consecrated these utensils for the service of the tabernacle and then it became holy. He consecrated these utensils and then it became holy. Exodus 40 verse 9 to 10. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it in all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offerings and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Now from this point on, right, this utensil that, was, that previously was common, after it was anointed and consecrated, it has become holy. And it has been consecrated for the service of the tabernacle. Set apart for this purpose. And from this point on, it cannot be used for any other purpose. From this point on, this utensil can only be used for the service of the tabernacle. If it is a fork consecrated for the purpose of picking up sacrificial meat on and off the, te- the altar, it is set apart for only this purpose. It is holy unto this purpose alone. It cannot be used for any other purpose because it has been set apart. Similarly, when God calls us to be holy, to be set apart, He's calling us to be set apart 
for his purposes only. Just like this um, um, utensil, this fork that's set apart for the purpose of picking meat on and off the altar, for that purpose, we have been set apart for the purposes of God only. It's like he has set his mark on us and declared that we are his and our lives are to be in service for his glory and purposes alone. Holiness is a call to wholehearted service and worship of God. We are called to be set apart for Him, to live for Him and His glory alone. And in my experience, I have found that when I set myself towards serving God and living for Him, it becomes easier to be separated from the world and to live in purity. It is hard to be separated from something when we don't have something to be attached to, to be set apart to. In a sense, in our desire to be pure, focus more on who and what we're living for than the sin we're separating ourselves from. I'm finishing up. I want to give the example um, of Israel and Egypt. I'll finish up with this example. You know, when we read the story of Exodus, right, we usually focus on the miracles, but we miss out on the purpose of the Exodus. Reading from Exodus 7, verse 16. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Reading from the ESV version, just now it's the NIV, reading from the ESV version, Exodus 8, 1. Thus say the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Exodus 8.20, thus say the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. This is reported three more times. Exodus 9.1, 9.13, 9.10.3. They all say the same thing. Let my people go that they may serve me, that they may worship me. The purpose of the Exodus was not so that Israel can enter the promised land, but it is so that they can serve God. Herein lies the fundamental difference in our worldview of salvation. In our worldview, we think, let my people go that we may enter the promised land and have eternal life. In the biblical worldview, it says, let my people go that we may serve the Lord and devote ourselves to His purposes and glory. One of the shortcomings of Christianity today is that we have emphasized the rewards of salvation more than the calling of salvation. Yes, we are saved, um, we have been delivered so that we can have eternal life, but we are also saved so that we can worship and serve God and so that God can have a people that is set apart for Him and is holy unto Him. Romans 12.1, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's deliverance, in view of the exodus, in view of your salvation, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. To be holy means that we live our lives fully for the purposes of God. God has marked us as holy. And this means that every area of our lives, our work, our marriage, our children, our money, our possessions, there is a call on us to consecrate every single area of this and dedicate it to the purposes and glory of God. Holiness is not just living without sin. Holiness is taking every part of your life and saying, God, I set this apart for you. 
how and what that looks like requires us to individually come before God. Lay each of these things at the altar and say, God, I surrender my life to you. My work, my marriage, my children, my money, my possession. I ask you this question, God, how can I serve and glorify you in each of this area? If you would wrestle with God with this question, what consecration and what holiness to God looks like will become apparent. Church family, we live in a Christian culture that makes holiness in the biblical sense optional. We live in a Christian culture that says, my life is my own. My life is not God's. To say the prayer, my, my life is God's, this is an optional thing in the culture we live in. But when we look at scripture, it's not optional. And because of this culture, it has created this scenario where there are two categories of Christians. Christians who see the core of holiness, who see the core of consecration as optional, and Christians who see the core of holiness as fundamental to who they are. River life, there's only one kind of Christianity. I believe it's the prayer of Pastor Ben together with the elders that we want to build and disciple a church that is set apart for God. We're not here for Christian self-improvement. We're not here to make our lives better. We're here so that God can have a people that is set apart for Him. We're not here to play church anymore. None of us give our lives here so that we can build a good Christian experience. Becoming holy is not optional. It's our identity as the people of God. The worship team can come up. First Peter 2 9 says, We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. To be a disciple of Christ is to walk the path of holiness, to be separated from the world, but also to be set apart fully for the purposes of God. Church, will you consecrate and surrender your life fully to Him? I pray that the Spirit of God will enable us and the love and grace of God will compel us. I invite you to bow our heads and pray. Um, I invite all of us to new. If you're unable to kneel, don't worry about it. You can. Let's just respect this moment for a while. Holy moment. Thus say the Lord. River Life Church. People of God. Be holy. Be separate from be separated from this world. And be set apart for my purposes and for my glory. Real life church, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. God, we come before you today and we ask ourselves the question.
Lord, what it is you want us to be separated from. Lord, what it is you want us to be separated from. And what it is you want us to be set apart from. Church, I want you to ask God this question. God, what it is you want me to be separated from? Perhaps it's not even an area of sin. Perhaps it's a neutral thing. God wants you to be separated from a a particular activity because it's drawing you away from Him. God wants you to be separated maybe from a certain relationship. So ask God the question, what does He desire you to be separated from? And number two, ask God what it is He wants you to be set apart for. Lord, which area of my life are you highlighting to me that you want me to dedicate it fully for you? I have kept it as my own. I have kept it as my own. I have, I've, I've, I've drawn up fences and gates and say, God, don't touch this area of my life. But God, today you're putting a finger and a hand on it and you say, River Life Church, I want this area. Will you set it apart for me? Because it is mine. Church, your life is not your own. You have been saved. Not so that you can go to heaven. That's, that's a good thing. That's a byproduct. But you are saved so that you can serve and worship God. Do not make the mistake of the Israelites who focus more on the promised land than on serving God. That's why they were chased out of the promised land. God, we repent if we have made our faith we have made our relationship with you more about getting to heaven than about serving you. Because God, you say, let my people go that they may go to the wilderness to serve me and to worship me. You did not say, let my people go so that they can go to the promised land. Lord, may you find in the River Life Church a people that is set apart for you, that is fully given to you, There is no such thing as uh, a Christian that that keeps his life or her life to himself and just say the sinner's prayer, have God's grace and mercy and go to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. That is a a sub, that is a a lower, inferior view of what Scripture says. That is what modern Christianity have set out our faith to be. But your word says that you have set us apart, you have made us holy, set apart for the purposes of God. And so God, this day we say, Lord, what it is you want me to be separated from and what it is you want me to be set apart for. That is the call on every single one of you, River Liver. We're not here for a self-improvement message. We are here to be consecrated by God. We are here to be set apart for God. God wants a whole of your life. Will you surrender that to Him? 
Lord, we repent, Lord, if we have kept our lives to ourselves. Lord, we repent if we have made, we have said, this career is my own thing. As, I, as long as I go to church, as long as I tie, I can do whatever I want in my career. God says, no, your career belongs to me. Set that career apart for me. Yes, you can continue to work in the marketplace, but ask the question, how can I serve and glorify God in my career and work? Some of you say, my money is my own. As long as I tie, the other 90% belongs to me. God says, no, all of your possession belongs to me, belongs to God. You are simply a steward. Ask God the question, what it is you want to do with my money, God? I surrender to you. I am a steward. I'm not the owner of my money. Because God, you say that we are called to consecrate every area of our lives. Church, I know this is a high call. But this is the biblical call. This is the biblical call to consecrate the whole of your lives to God. Obviously, you can't do it in your own strength. We need the enablement of the Spirit of God. So this is what I want us to do. I think this is perhaps an even more, even more powerful altar call than asking you to come to the front. Today, if God has um, laid something on your heart to be separated from or to be set apart for, I challenge you to tell someone about it. To tell your cell leader, your spouse, your close friend, your cell members. This is what I want to be accountable for. God has asked me to set aside my time to come before His Word and read it. Tell that to someone. I believe that would have a more lasting impact than asking you to come to the altar. Because coming to the altar, maybe it's for just a moment, but telling this to someone puts you in a situation when your leader or your friend, your cellmate, will hold you accountable to what you say. Put what we have just preached into practice. Be authentic and accountable to someone. Because this call is a call for everyone, I will not ask you to come to the front, but I would want us to respond to God with this song together. So can I invite all of us to stand? And as we worship God with this song, use this song as a way to respond to God's call to holiness and consecration. Thank you for listening to the River Life Podcast. We hope that you've encountered Jesus through the Word. If you'd like to connect with community or find out more about River Life Church, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or head on over to riverlife.org.sg. God bless and have a great week ahead.